0: Hello and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles and consequences of the First World War. Episode 59, Romania. Last time, we began setting the scene for Romania's entry into the Great War by examining how the Russian offensive in Galicia played out during the late summer of 1916. By mid-August Brusilov had failed to take Kovold once again, and it looked as though the Russian juggernaut had run out of steam. This week, we're going to finish the second part of last week's story. One country was watching Brusilov's attack with great interest, and that country was Romania. On August the 17th, Romania joined the Allies, and 10 days later, declared war on Austria-Hungary. Today, I want to talk about the details of Romania's entry what she was after, and how she ended up on the side of the Entente. Despite being hailed as the new hope for the Allies, Romania's war would be one of tragedy and misstep, which wound up costing her more than anyone could have imagined. In the years preceding the war, Romanian politics was dominated by one man, the premier Iwan Bradiano. When we think of the major players in early 20th century European diplomacy, the Greys, the Birch Birchtolds, and the Zazanovs, Iwan Bradiano is not a name which commonly springs to mind. But in the years leading to the Great War, Bradiano was perhaps the most well-known and revered politician in Europe, a man whom some historians argue was the shrewdest practitioner of real politic since the days of Bismarck. Iwan Bradiano was born in August 1864, in the town of Stefanetsky in south-central Romania. From a young age, he was destined for a career in politics. His father had been a legendary figure in the Romanian independence movements, who founded the National Liberal Party in 1875. His father died in 1891, while Iwan was in Paris studying engineering. It was during his time in the French capital when Iwan developed a passion for history and politics, often skipping his own classes to attend lectures in the humanities. He was enthralled by the writings of the great political thinkers, and was particularly impressed by the works of Borgia and Machiavelli, the founders of real politic. As we discussed way back in our first episodes, real politic was a political idea based on circumstances and factors. The best practitioners of real politic were not concerned with moral or ethical considerations. They were opportunists who sought to take advantage of the political and diplomatic climate to achieve their goals, often playing nations against one another. The supreme practitioner of realpolitik was, of course, Otto von Bismarck, who orchestrated wars against Denmark, Austria, and France for the betterment of Prussia. Put simply, realpolitik was the ruthless pursuit by means, including illegal and violent ones, to advance the interests of one's country. Iwan Bradiano, saw an opportunity to bring the ideas of real politics back to Romania. Balkan politics at the time were hypercharged by nationalism and independent determination. Serbia, Greece, Montenegro, Bulgaria, and Romania had all proclaimed independence at the same time, and were all looking to expand their borders at the expense of their neighbours, including the great powers, and of course, each other. thus returned to Romania when the Balkan states were still under birth pangs, and began plotting a new course for his country. Upon returning to Bucharest in 1895, Bradiano established himself as an ardent nationalist. As an MP, Bradiano echoed his father's sentiments, becoming a champion of a powerful, independent Romania. Imbued with a sense of purpose, he pursued his vision of uniting all Romanian peoples into a single national entity. In a speech to Parliament in the summer of 1912, Bratiano laid out his vision in stark terms, saying, quote, A state like ours cannot claim to issue the directives of global policy, but must clearly know the international situation, which is to take advantage of various circumstances as far as possible, and as well as possible, for its own interests. End quote. Bratiano wanted to carve Romania her own corner out of the Balkans but he understood he would need support from the great powers to achieve this. Unlike Bismarck, Bradiano did not have an industrialized state to back him up. Romania was predominantly rural. 46% of the country was under cultivation, and she had little industry to speak of. Most of her steel, iron, and rubber had to be imported from Germany, Russia, or the United States. But there were two things she had plenty of. Wheat and oil. From the 46% of cultivated land, 84% was dedicated to wheat production. Romania's entire economy was based around the harvest. In 1913, 2.7 million metric tons of wheat was produced, of which 1 million hit the open market. These are impressive numbers for such a small country. What makes it all the more impressive was the fact they did so without modern technology. There were only a few hundred tractors in the entire country, so most of the labour had to be done manually. Despite it being Romania's largest export, wheat production had not changed much since the 1600s. With so many young men tied up in agricultural duties, the effect on Romania's military organization was not insignificant. Military service was restricted to the spring and summer. Come September, thousands of young men were decommissioned and sent home for the harvest. This is why Romania had stayed out of the First Balkan War in October 1912, and why she joined the second the following June. Essentially, Romania's military did not exist in the autumn and winter, and there was no way around this. If the Romanians wanted food for the winter, this was the only way to get it. It goes without saying that Romania was not a great power, nor was she a potential one. She could not offer much in terms of military or economic support, but Bratiano skillfully leveraged her value as an oil producer to gain the attention of the great powers. In the year before hostilities, she produced nearly 2 million metric tons of petrol, 57% of which went to market. Oil, of course, is the lifeblood of any modern military, and Bucharest often sold it at a bulk for a reduced price. The Germans, English, Americans and Dutch owned refineries in Wallachia and Moldavia, so the great powers had a mutual interest in keeping Romania neutral. Under normal circumstances, Romania was much better off staying neutral. Neither the central powers nor Entente were actively seeking her involvement, but Bratiano, who became premier in January 1914, had different plans. When Moore put on the agenda the redrawing of the map of Europe Bradiano wasted no time in getting started. The strategic aims of Romanian foreign policy were clear. Romanian public opinion was strongly influenced by a desire to unite all ethnic Romanians into a greater Romanian kingdom. In 1914, the Kingdom of Romania shared a border with Russia, Austria-Hungary, Serbia, and Bulgaria. It ran for a distance of 700 kilometers through the Carpathians for another 500 kilometers along the Danube, and then along the flat of Jabrugia on the Black Sea coast. From a military perspective, her borders were a nightmare, but from a diplomatic point of view, it gave Bratiano a plethora of potential allies. Historically, Romanian ambitions were directed towards Transylvania, home of some 3 million Romanian speakers, currently part of Austria-Hungary. This desire for unification manifested itself not only in Romania, but also in Transylvania, where efforts at rapprochement between the Romanians and Magyars had hit a stumbling block. The main determinant of Romanian diplomacy between 1914 and 1916 was her long-time membership in the Triple Alliance. In 1913, a new treaty linking Bucharest, Vienna, and Berlin was signed, stipulating that that Romania was bound to defend her allies against an attack from Russia, but the treaty had never been ratified, and few expected Bucharest would have gone through with it anyway. It was no secret that the Romanian public was pro-entente, and that the agreement had come about because the aging king, Carol I, had been a cousin of Kaiser Wilhelm. In other words, the 1913 treaty was little more than an insurance policy, and a poor one at that. No one was surprised when Romania declared neutrality in July 1914. That June, the Russian foreign minister, our old friend Sergei Zazanov, met with Bratnow to clarify Romania's position on Russia. After the meeting, Zazanov summed up his impressions with the words, quote, Romania will try to join the side which proved to be the strongest, and which is in a position to promise the greatest profits. End quote. It is important to stress that although Zazanov came to the conclusion there was little chance of Romania joining the war against Russia, he did not rule out the possibility if the Central Powers won decisive military victories. In this case, Bratnow was able to play both sides of the table, diplomatically sympathetic to the Central Powers, yet ideologically in line with the Entente. Romania's path to intervention is full of these ambiguities, but they must be kept in mind as otherwise, Bratnow's diplomatic maneuvering appears incomprehensible. Romania took her first step towards war on October 10th, 1914, when King Carol died, and the more liberal Prince Ferdinand assumed the throne. Prince Ferdinand occupies an interesting place in Romanian history. Known to be knowledgeable and articulate in private, he was reserved and quiet in public life, His public persona contrasted mightily with that of his wife, the larger-than-life Empress Marie, who was perhaps the most powerful woman in Europe. Marie was the brains behind Ferdinand's rule. The daughter of an English duke and Russian grand duchess meant Marie was decisively pro-entente, and it was her influence on Ferdinand which convinced her husband to abandon his father's Germanophile sympathies. With the support of the royal family now in the bag, Bratnow worked his craft. On October 1st, he met with the Russian ambassador in Bucharest, and drew up terms which would guarantee neutrality between the two nations. In exchange for Romania's neutrality, Bratiano wanted assurances that Russia would acknowledge Romanian interests in Transylvania. The ambassador agreed, and in an exchange of notes between the two capitals, acknowledged Romania's right to, and I quote, "...annex the territories of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, which are populated by Romanians, by letting their forces occupy them at a moment it deems convenient." Quote. This agreement is significant for two reasons. First, it shows that Russia was the first Entente power to accept the inevitable collapse of the Habsburg monarchy. Second, it is significant for what the agreement did not say. I'll reread it. Russia acknowledged... Romania's right to quote, annex the territories of the Austro Hungarian monarchy, which are populated by Romanians, by letting their forces occupy them at a moment it deems convenient. End quote. At first glance, it appears that Russia was prepared to reward Romanian neutrality by handing over territory captured by the Russian army, and indeed this was what Bradiano was secretly hoping for. However, if you look closely enough, there is no such guarantee. Russia was merely promising that Romania could occupy these territories without Russian interference. In other words, Romania would have to invade these lands on their own accord, meaning she would have to declare war on Austria-Hungary first. The Russians had upped the ante, but Bratnow had gotten what he wanted. With an agreement in writing, he was able to take the next step. In early 1915, Bratiano opened negotiations with the French and British, but this time his demands were much higher. In addition to Transylvania, he now demanded Bukovina, the Banat region that straddled Hungary and Serbia, and parts of Hungary to the north and west of Transylvania itself. Anglo-French diplomats were aghast. They had no problem with Romania taking Transylvania as that was territory of Austria-Hungary. But the addition of Bukovina and the Banat meant territorial concessions from their allies, Russia and Serbia. The talks stalled, but developments at the front soon swung in Bratnow's favour. That spring, the Russians were sent reeling by the Austro-German assault at Gorlice Tarnov, while Anglo-French forces floundered at Gallipoli. The Entente was in need of help and after Italy joined their cause, pressure mounted on Russia to get Romania on board. Sazanov knew that any agreement with Bratnow would come with a great loss of territory. He tried to gauge the interest of Britain and France, but all they could see was the possibility of adding 650,000 bayonets to the cause. It's always easy to give away someone else's territory, so London and Paris pushed St. Petersburg to strike a deal no matter the cost. Securing Romanian support in the war took on a whole new dimension that spring. Although there were no illusions about the war-winning capabilities of the primitive Romanian army, it goes to show how desperate the Anton had become, that they were willing to entertain the idea in the first place. Militarily, Romania had little to offer. Not only was her border vulnerable to attack, but her army was nothing to write home about. Although she could boast about her victory in the Second Balkan War, this obscured the reality. Russian military observers had a high opinion of their rank and file, but criticized the officers, in particular the generals, who, in their opinion, had not kept up with the advance of the 20th century. Knowing what we know about Russian military leadership in the First World War, this criticism becomes all the more potent. General Henri Berthelot, the head of the French military mission in 1916, had a similar opinion, saying, quote, Their soldiers are good, or at least durable, but the command is extraordinarily weak. End quote. Fully mobilized, Romania could field 800,000 men to the ranks, with another 400,000 available if required, an astonishing 30% of the entire male population. This may seem impressive on paper, but you did not have to look far to see the cracks begin to develop. The army was poorly equipped. Five divisions possessed no machine guns at all, and the rest were woefully short on artillery. In fact, most of the artillery pieces Romania possessed were on lease from Germany. There were also no horses for the cavalry, and the supply of ammunition was expected to last just six weeks. According to Norman Stone, British observers felt that the operations of the Romanian army would make a public school field day look like the execution of the Schlieffen Plan. Under these circumstances, it is no surprise that Russia preferred to keep Romania neutral. It would take months and millions of dollars just to get her into fighting shape. Supplying her would be a nightmare as well. Supplies and additions would have to come from outside via Russia. The only possible routes through Archangel and Vladivostok and then across the entire Galician front were already clogged with traffic furthermore Russian and Romanian railways operated on different gauges so supplies would have to be transshipped at the border taken off one train and put on another there was also a geographical concern a neutral Romania had the advantage of protecting Russia's frontier from the Black Sea to the Carpathians which limited the chance of a Bulgarian attack if Bulgaria were to join the Central Powers. When that became a reality in September 1915, maintaining Romanian neutrality became all the more important. In St. Petersburg, Sazanov did what he could to tone down Bratignano's demands, but given Russia's deteriorating position, there was little room to maneuver. Britain and France likewise pressured Sazonov to entice Romania into war by means of far reaching concessions. Everyone could see the game Bratiano was playing, as echoed by the Romanian envoy in St. Petersburg, quote, After Italy entered the war, and while the Russians were at the Carpathians, we were told that our help was of no special importance. The rate of concessions then escalated. Almost on the day of the German occupation of Warsaw, all demands were met, Sazonov Sazanov had little choice. Under pressure from Bucharest, London and Paris, he agreed to Bratiano's demands for Transylvania, Bukovina, and the Banat. Characteristic of the great powers at the time, Russia had just signed away Serbian territory without their consent, and it should be noted that this agreement was made in the summer of 1915, when Serbia remained in the war. Fortunately for Zazanov, these terms would not be made public. In a stunning turn, Bradiano carried out one of those manoeuvres that earned him the reputation of being a double dealer, or, in the words of Glen a man who ran with the hare and hunted with the hounds. Devious and secretive to the degree that even his closest associates were unclear of his true intentions, Bradiano stunned the Allies with what he did next. Bradiano refused to sign, and informed Sazonov he would need permission from Parliament before anything was put in writing. Everyone knew this was complete BS. The pro-entente factions in Bucharest were the dominant force, and would have ratified anything Bratiano brought before them. Bratiano wanted to up his demands one more time, and with the Russians in retreat, and no movement in France or at the Dardanelles, Bratiano chose to wait for better opportunities. As Bratiano waited for his Better opportunities, he watched the Allied positions crumble. Serbia and Montenegro fell, while Bulgaria joined the war with Germany. Anglo French forces departed Gallipoli in embarrassment, and on the Western Front, the offensives in Artois Champagne were choked in blood. The onset of winter allowed Bratiano to raise his demands one more time. He hinted that Romania would be prepared to enter the war in early 1916 if a russian contingent was sent to assist her bradiano decided this should number about 500,000 russian soldiers now bradiano knew he would never get this but the purpose was to get as much as he could in addition he also requested that the allied forces at Salonika launch a preemptive strike against bulgaria these latest terms were beyond anything the Entente could reasonably accept. For one, the situation at Salonika was hopeless. What began as a Hail Mary attempt to save Serbia had turned into a dumping ground for unwanted officers and units. By the autumn of 1916, the Allied forces there had ballooned to 20 divisions, enough to make a possible offensive into Macedonia. In addition to the polyglot nature of the force there, including British, French, Italian, Serbian, and Russian divisions, it had also grown to include troops from French Indochina, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. The Salonika front had become an open sore for the Allies, but what made the effort all the more embarrassing was the fact that Greece remained neutral. The Greek king, Constantine, was a brother in law of Kaiser Wilhelm, who refused to grant Allied forces inland access so the army remained trapped along the Greek coast with nowhere to go. Bradiano understood the ramifications of the predicament, but it didn't matter. Any movement along the coast was bound to attract the attention of the Bulgarians, who watched the Macedonian frontier with great interest. If the Bulgarians were distracted, it would give Romania enough time to attack them from the east. The roadblock for Bradiano was, as always, the Russian Foreign Minister Sazanov, who wisely understood that a Romanian attack against Bulgaria would only transpire if Russia declared war first. In the winter of 1915, Sazanov was not interested in heightening hostilities with Bulgaria. The two nations were not at war, and Sazanov was determined to keep it that way. The Russian Foreign Minister enjoyed the support of the Western Allies, the French and British were left with a bitter taste by Bradiano's manoeuvring. They knew the Romanian premier was leveraging their support to put pressure on Russia. It comes as no surprise that during the Shanti meeting in December 1915, Romania had not come up once. For the Allies, Romania was a lost cause, and to Bradiano, it looked as though he had squandered his only opportunity. It was an anxious winter in Bucharest. The pro-Anton public was in a state of desperation and resignation. The Russian ambassador commented, quote, "The moment of Romania's active participation depended not on any consideration of a high moral and ideal kind, but was determined exclusively by the general situation at the main war theater." spent his winter in the capital, working assiduously to keep a lid on the more hot-headed elements who believed Romania should honour her commitment to the Central Powers. Despite his questionable antics, Bradiano remained loyal to the Entente orientation. His cool and somber mind warned him not to be stampeded into action by German victories. This latest stalemate lasted throughout the winter, finally breaking in the late spring of 1916. The opening of the Brusilov Offensive on June the 4th shook Bucharest out of its winter slumber. The Russian attack smashed its way into Galicia, threatening the Austro-German forces with catastrophe. Within weeks, 1.5 million Habsburg troops had been killed, wounded, or taken prisoner. The initial gains of the attack convinced Bucharest the Allies had gained the upper hand. Hardened by the news, Bradiano called up Sazanov but now the tables had turned yet again. Russia now felt Romania's intervention was unnecessary, and that any participation on her behalf outweighed the reward. In desperation, Bratiano lowered his expectations, dropping his request for 500,000 Russian troops to just 200,000. Sazanov could see what Bratiano was driving at. It appeared that that Bradiano wanted to use Russian troops against Bulgaria, while preserving the Romanian army for an attack into Transylvania. In other words, Russia would be tasked with defending Romania from Bulgaria, so Romania could claim Habsburg territory. It made no sense to divert Russian troops when Brusilov was on a tear, and Sazanov wisely rejected the deal. However, Bradiano soon received help from an unexpected source. With the carnage at Verdun reaching its zenith, and the Somme offensive fast approaching, Joseph Joff was desperate for any help he could get. In late June, Joff exchanged views with Mikhail Alexeyev, and convinced the Russian to offer Romania a chance to intervene. The term stipulated that Romania would be granted Transylvania and Bukovina, but she had to declare war on Austria-Hungary within two weeks. On July 2nd, Alexeyev sent a telegram to Bucharest, saying, Quote, Romania's participation now will be important, but I cannot say this if the decision is postponed for an indefinite period of time. The situation dictates the Romanians join us now or never. End quote. Alexeyev had overshot his target. He was too optimistic about the military strategic position, and believed that the Austro-Hungarian army was too weak to take the offensive. Likewise, he also believed, erroneously, that the Bulgarian army, supposedly tied down at Salonika, would not be able to attack Romania. Eager to take advantage of the situation, Alexeyev believed a fresh Romanian army could be of help. A Russian delegation was sent to Bucharest to hammer out the details. Sergei Sazanov was the last obstacle. He remained unconvinced of Romania's value, and fought as hard as he could to prevent her from joining the Allies. But then, on July 10th, Tsarina Alexandra dismissed Sazanov, and replaced him with Boris Sturmer, a man once described by the French ambassador as a third-rate intellect with no experience and no idea of state business. Sturmer was not half the diplomat Sazanov was, and he was cursed with having a German-sounding name at the wrong place at the wrong time. The removal of the capable Sazanov was instantly felt. Sturmer would fumble the talks all the way into August. Talks would drag out until mid-August, just as the Brusilov offensive began to putter to a halt. On August the 17th, delegates from England, France, Russia, and Italy met at the home belonging to Bratiano's brother, and an agreement was signed. Romania had joined the Allies. In return, the Allies promised her all of the Austro-Hungarian territory claimed in 1915, together with some concessions from Bratiano. Romania pledged not to conclude a separate peace, and the Allies promised to grant her equal status during the peace negotiations. Most importantly, Romania was bound to declare war on Austria-Hungary only. Romania's decision to join the First World War came at a time when the war was swinging in Allied favour, but it would turn out to be one of the most disastrous decisions ever taken by a modern state. Bratiano is remembered by history as a political master a shrewd practitioner of real politic who played the Allies like a fiddle. On paper, the terms he secured were favourable, so his efforts were not in vain. However, Bradiano did not know to quit while ahead. He had waited too long, and soon found he had put Romania in an unwinnable situation. Before the ink had dried, a flurry of activity took place. The Brusilov offensive stalled and Habsburg Intelligence Services picked up the news about Romania. The Central Powers acted quickly. The Bulgarians struck into Macedonia. Securing rail lines and bridges, which prevented the Salonica force from moving inland. Soon afterwards, the dominoes fell for a second time. In support of her new ally, Italy declared war on Germany. And in response, each of the Central Powers declared war on Romania with no Russian army to defend her, she was totally exposed. Romania issued her declaration of war against Austria-Hungary on August the 27th, 1916. But 2 days later, found herself at war not only with Austria-Hungary, but also with Germany, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire. With the Russian offensive in Galicia stalled, there was no one left to defend her frontier. For Romania, A long and disastrous war lay ahead. We'll get into the specifics of Romania's war next week, but I want to end off today by saying this will be our final episode for 2017. I want to thank everyone who has tuned in and stuck by during my unexpected absences. Have a safe and happy holiday, and I will see you all soon in the new year. That's it for this year. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter, at Great War Podcast, or reach us through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you are enjoying the show and want to help us out, you can make a one-time donation through the homepage. All donations go to help cover the cost of hosting and of acquiring new sources. Another way to help the show is to rate us 5 stars on iTunes. iTunes charts their podcasts based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will ensure I stay tethered to my laptop and continue working on new episodes. This has been episode 59 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.